Benjamin Franklin famously wrote uh, when he was writing in a letter um, in response to the signing of the um, New American Constitution when he was questioned about the certainty of it, the, the, the stability of it, he said this, some famous words, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. I think a, a number of other people have said this too. And there's much wisdom in that, isn't there? But I think that he doesn't go far enough. I think suffering should also be in that list of certainties. Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, later on in the book, says this. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upwards. And we get the sense there, don't we? The sense of certainty. Maybe if you asked me, uh, well, if you did ask me, if I would like a coffee... I could quite easily say to you, do the sparks fly upwards? And you'd know immediately what I'm saying, wouldn't you? Well, yes, of course. As the sparks always fly upwards, without any variation, so I would like a coffee. And so that is what Eliphaz is saying, that mankind in general is born to trouble. Suffering will come. But indeed, more so for the believer, for Christians, for followers of Christ. In the Bible, Jesus Christ himself speaks of the suffering of his followers. In John's Gospel, he says, if they persecute me, then they also will persecute you. Suffering will come. Now, Jesus, in the context that he was speaking, was speaking specifically of the outward persecution for standing for Christ. But I think that in good and necessary consequences, a good deduction from this would be that we face the same kinds of suffering, the same kind of opposition that Christ faced. We see Christ facing opposition from Satan himself. Being tempted, being opposed, finally being nailed to a cross. And so, as with our master, so it will be with us. And so an important question to ask, and for us to answer is when the inevitable comes, how should I, as a believer, respond? How should I, as one of God's children, respond when suffering strikes? Now, we must uh, confess and we know that suffering comes into our lives for varying reasons. Sometimes it comes because of foolishness on our behalf and we suffer the consequences. Uh, maybe, maybe even it's because we have sinned 
And God is chastising one of his children to bring them back into the way, as we see so often in the story, that great story of Pilgrim's Progress. We see Pilgrim erring and going out of the way and suffering befalling him to draw him back, back into the way. Revelations 3.19 says, As many as the Lord loves, he chastens. But it may also come into our life because God is using it to refine us as that crucible, as it were, the refiner's fire, where our dross may be taken away and consumed, that we may be moulded into the image of Christ and for his service, for his glory. I think we see this in Paul's life, don't we? Paul says this, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation. That is the revelation that had been revealed to him, imparted to him as an apostle of the church to teach the church, to write scripture. Lest he be uh, exalted above measure, a thorn in the flesh was given to him, suffering a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Or indeed, it may simply be for God's glory. How we long for God's glory. How we, as God's children, long for him to be acknowledged and glorified in the world. And we see this with that blind man That poor man who had been born blind. And and, uh, we see the disciples questioning the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, well, who sinned? Who sinned a specific sin for that this man should be born blind? Was it him? Or was it his parents? And Jesus says, no, neither. But he is blind so that the works of God could be displayed. And indeed, God's glory should be central to everything in our lives. And whenever we are faced with suffering, it'll be in the end for God's glory. But no matter what reason, I know I've taken some time over going through these, but we must recognise that no matter what reason here this morning, you may be suffering Or that you may suffer in the coming days. We've just heard this announcement that once again there's going to be lockdown. When we are isolated from friends and family. From loved ones in the church and we have lost the freedom to gather together in the way we would like. Inevitable suffering will come. But no matter what the reason of the suffering, we must always acknowledge that God is in control. We must always acknowledge that it's from him. And as we come to Job this morning, I think there is none other or no one else who suffered as a believer 
like Job. Job suffered greatly, didn't he? And so I would like to concentrate on verses 20 and 22 in, uh, in particular. Um, Job's response to suffering, indeed, so that we can learn from him. But firstly, we need to see what was Job's suffering? What was it that would happen so bad to Job? Now, Job was a, a godly man. But there was something that we rarely see. He was also wealthy. Oftentimes we see men of great wealth and great standing who rely solely on their wealth, who have made it their be-all and end-all. And yet here we have a man who, though very prosperous, though very renowned, He was also God-fearing. In verse 1 we read that Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. Now this isn't to say that this man was perfect. No, we know that there is none righteous, no, not one. But indeed, in all his action, he sought to serve God. He sought in every fibre of his being to follow him and to know him as Lord in his life. We see this in the way he shunned evil and the way he knew the propensity of his own heart to sin. We see him, don't we, that every time his children would have a party, perhaps a birthday party, He would send and consecrate them, draw them out to himself so that he may sacrifice on their behalf lest they just sinned in their heart. Lest they thought in their heart that they had it all. That they were good enough and sought to live without God. That's the essence of those words there. The cursing God is, is the essence of, of, of not acknowledging him. Of, of believing they are able to live without him. Lest in that time of revelry and partying, they forget God. And so Job understood the propensity of man's heart to sin. And he shunned it and he sought to be right with God daily. And I think in this way, this man, Job, was living in a way that was preparing himself for the day of trouble. He wasn't putting all his his, uh, emphasis on his stuff. He um, He wasn't relying on his own righteousness. No, he acknowledged God. And so here I think we need to challenge ourselves. This challenges us as God's people. Are we living like this? Are you living in a way that prepares you for the inevitable day of suffering? Are we acknowledging God in all things? Now, Job had no idea of what was going on in the heavenly realm. 
But there was one day when this wealthy man, this prosperous, godly man, came to the attention of the heavenly courts. And we see here Satan coming into God's presence. And Job uh, and God recommends Job as a man who is godly. And Satan chose and desired to have him. Desired to, to persecute him. To afflict him with great suffering because he believed that if he did so, then Job would curse God. And we see the relentless nature of this dark day, don't we? Immediately another servant came and another servant came. Before one servant could finish telling the bad news, another servant came to tell more bad news. And this man in the, in the space of one day lost all his wealth. Lost all his household, his servants. Lost his renown in society as the great man. And indeed he lost all his children. What a dark day. What a dark day. And yet we see he doesn't sin. He doesn't, he doesn't curse God as Satan was desiring. And there's so much here to learn in this first chapter of, of, of God's sovereignty, of the sinfulness of sin, of, of um, the man's responsibility. Um, of the relationship and the dynamics of the evil one in this world. But this, this morning, as I've said, I want to pass by over that, acknowledging that God is in control, but look at his response to that grief that he, he had, that great affliction. And firstly, I'd like to see um, in his reaction, his grief. His grief. I think uh, in many churches today, in many certainly churches in this nation, and as a country as a whole, we tend to be quite stoic, don't we? Uh, that stiff upper lip. We think it's weakness to grieve. We think that we should be able to go about and not grieve. But here, Job demonstrates grief. But we must notice that he demonstrates grief, but uh, in the right way. There is a wrong grief, and there is a right way to grieve. We see, verse 20, then Job arose. He tore his robe and he shaved his head. You see, the tearing of garments and the shaving or plucking of the hair of the head was a common way to um, display grief. We see Ezra plucking out his beard and his hair when he was grief-stricken over the sin of, of Israel. Uh, Jacob, um, when 
he thought that Joseph, his beloved son, had been killed, tore his coat. We see David when he thought that Absalom had killed all of his sons, tearing his robe. So we see this is the, the, the outward expression of grief. Job grieved. But notice also he didn't lose control. This isn't um, a, a fit of despair. No, we see there in a careful manner him shaving either having himself shaved by someone else or himself shaving. And all you who shave know that you need to be in the right frame of mind to do so. We see here a right response to loss, a right grief. Paul, writing to the Thessalonian church, exhorted them, do not grieve as those who have no hope. And so we ought to grieve. You see, Job had hope. Job had a God who was seated in the heavenly places. Who he knew was in control. And because of this, he grieved. But he grieved as those who who have hope. And so he grieved, he grieved. And and, and indeed, it would be wrong of us not to grieve, wouldn't it? When we see the, 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 the results of sin in this world, as we see the loss of life, the penalty for sin, something so unnatural that has been, that has waged into our world, we see even the Lord Jesus Christ weeping, At the tomb of Lazarus. Grieving. Grieving over the loss of life. But he grieved didn't he? As one who hoped in his father. And so this is the way we should grieve. So firstly the right response to suffering. Is to have the right kind of grief. But secondly, and possibly even more amazingly, is he worshipped. He worshipped. We see verse 22. He fell to the ground and worshipped. Now just imagine this for a second. In that same day, he lost everything. He lost absolutely everything and yet his first response is to get down on his knees and he worshipped God for who he is. He worshipped. In all his grief, he did not let that grief overwhelm him for him to become self-centred and looking inwards. No, he looked outwards and he worshipped God. And notice his truly profound words. I wonder how many of us would say this if we were struck like Job. Naked came I, um, 
I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He blesses God because he knows that God is Lord. And the reason he was able to do this in the midst of such suffering and grief was because he had a right knowledge and understanding of who God is. Of who God is. He knew that he was the creator. He is the giver of life and every good thing. Job understood that everything that he had was given by the hand of God and it was in God's hands and, and will to do with as he pleases. He recognised that the things that were given to him were but a gift and God could rightly take them away. And though God chose to on that particular day, Job, because of his understanding, his knowledge of his God in heaven, worshipped. Habakkuk, I think, has this exact same knowledge and a knowledge that we need to comprehend. He says, and just think about this, really concentrate on this. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor the fruit beyond the vines, though the labour of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Do you understand what Habakkuk is saying here? Just think, he's going through everything, every gift that the Lord could give that sustains life. He's saying, though there might not be figs on the trees to eat, though there will be no fruit of the vines, grapes and wine to drink, though the olives may fail, no olive oil, no olives to eat, and that there be no food in the field. So we've gone through Drink, we've gone through oil, we've gone through wheat, barley, all of crops of the earth. Then we see that all the flocks are now cut off from the stalls. There is famine, there is nothing, there is pestilence. And yet in all that, Habakkuk resolves to rejoice in God. Why? Because God is God and there is none other. And it is in God that we have salvation. My friends, there are far greater things to concern ourselves with than what we fill our bellies with. And that is eternity. And Habakkuk realised that though there may be famine in the land, yet there is salvation with God. And so we can rejoice for so great a salvation. To bring this into more a a contemporary light, though uh, I suppose it's not that contemporary, Horatio Spafford, I'm sure many of you will have heard his story, 
What a harrowing story it is. But many of us don't hear the whole truth of his story. Here we have a Job character. We had in the first two years prior to the the, the events that we all well know. His son, his only son, died at the age of two. And then in that same year, as far as I can understand, there was a great fire. The fire of Chicago in um, in 71. And Horatio Spafford was a businessman and all his wealth was ploughed into the property of that city. And he lost it all. And what remained as a businessman he sought to do his best and what remained then there came a downturn. An economic recession of 1873 which decimated him completely. All it seems he had left was his wife, his four daughters. And so therefore he chose to up and leave America and come to Europe. He needed to tidy up some things before he left. So he sent his wife and and four daughters along ahead of him. And yet, yet on that crossing, his, the ship sank and his four daughters died. Just think of that in a space of just two years. He had lost his, his livelihood, he'd lost his business, he'd lost his wealth, he'd lost his son, and now he'd lost his four daughters. And yet shortly afterwards, as Spafford was travelling to meet his grieving wife, on that ship wrote this great hymn. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know. It is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My friends, in the midst of suffering, our first response should be to worship God. And thirdly, we see also another response, and that is a response of obedience and submission. You may be wondering, where do I see this? Well, I believe that all of the above shouts out that he was submitting to God's will. Naked I came, and naked shall I go. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He is submitting to God. And this indeed was what enabled him to worship. Being in submission to God and his will. You see, Job was ready to submit no matter what God had in store for him. Later on um, in chapter 2 when Job's wife, after he had been afflicted once again but afflicted in his body this time and his, his wife comes to him and, and urges him to curse God and die. 
He says this, shall we indeed accept good from God? Shall we not accept adversity? You see, Job here was submitting to God's will. Accepting both good and bad. And indeed, this is what our attitude must be like. For if it's not, if we are not, it's submitting to God. If we are not acknowledging him as Lord and sovereign in our lives, then it will be impossible to worship him when those times come. One commentator I read said this, our attachment to the things of this world must ever take into account that one day we shall be separated from them by death. When we approach life packed up and ready to go, the shocks will be less shocking. Isn't that so true? And, and this indeed must include our own life. Not just the things that we possess, but even our life is a gift of God and we are in his hands. Now that's not to say that we shouldn't love. That isn't to say that we should not seek to be diligent and work in this world. No, these are right and good. But we should have that loose grip. Holding the things that we have in our hands, ready to present them back to God. I personally find this difficult, especially coming to my children. How often it is my wife and I just chat and, and, and remind ourselves that even our children are but gifts from God. And he may desire them back any day. And he may choose to take them far away in his service. We must not cling, hold, cling on to them tight. And so that must be with all our wealth. With our health even. That we must submit to God. But we must remember that we are submitting. Not to an austere God. Not to a God that revels in our harm, but to a good God. Abraham, one of Job's contemporaries, we believe, said this, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? We've got a good God. And Job recognised this. Abraham recognised this. And yet they were still in the land of shadows. They were still hoping for that promise of Christ, of, of, of a, a new world to come, of salvation to come in a great sacrifice. And yet we have the completed revelation of God. We are living in the light. We have, it said to us by Paul, that all things are working together for the good of those who love God and for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. We can rest upon him because he is God, good. And he has given us his son. He has given us his son that we might have life and life eternal. 
And here, I believe, finally, in Job, we have a great foretaste, a great picture of who that coming one would be and what he would be like, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, the truly righteous man who suffered a greater suffering than anyone could ever possibly have or imagine. A suffering that he did not deserve. We see with Job that there is nothing he did in particular to deserve what he, he went through. But God, Jesus, God the Son, had no sin. In and of himself should not be subject to suffering. Should not be subject to death. And yet he suffered greatly. The righteous man suffering for sin. And yet we also see him as he anticipated the greatest suffering he would endure. In the garden of Gethsemane as he wept and as he swept great drops of blood. We see him falling to his knees and worshipping as he had you and me in mind. He worships and he submits. He submits to the will of his Father and he goes to the cross and he endures the cross as Job endured suffering for the glory, for the joy that is set before him. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. My friends, we do not have a God who does not sympathise with us. No, as the writer to the Hebrews reminds us and tells us, we have a great high priest who sympathises with us in our weaknesses and in our suffering. The Lord Jesus Christ is there. Sympathising with us, knowing our weaknesses, knowing our fears, knowing our frame. And yet he endured the cross. James 5.11 speaks of Job in a very similar way. He says, indeed we count them blessed who endured. You see that, that word, endured, through hardship. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Persevere, brothers. Persevere, sisters. In the midst of great suffering, God has stored up for you great blessings of future glory to be glorified with his Son in eternity. And though we might not see great wealth in this world as Job saw it, we will see great glory in the time to come as we are are storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven as we serve God, as we are obedient to our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. Endure. Be patient. And suffer well. Ever worshipping God. 
ever worshipping our Saviour. For we have a Saviour who knows all things. Who knows the end from the beginning. In Revelation he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. And that is our Lord and Saviour. But friend, if you are here and you are not following Christ this morning, suffering, the sufferings of this world is just but a foretaste of what is to come. As I've noted, Christ didn't deserve suffering because he did not sin, yet each in this room are sinners. We deserve it. We deserve nothing but the wrath of God. And one day we will endure that wrath. We will stand under that wrath. And it will be, we will be suffering and afflicted for eternity. As we endure the just punishment for our sins. Yet the glory of the gospel, the good news is that the Lord Jesus Christ endured that suffering. Endured that punishment as he was there three hours on the cross. Taking on him the punishment of all who believe in him. So my friends, whilst today is day, whilst there is breath in your bodies... Call upon him. Repent. Turn from your wicked ways. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look and live. Though you may die today. Though you may die tomorrow. You will live for eternity. Glorying in God forevermore. Amen.